This week on Invasion of the Podcast, we shamble along the hillside picking up young women turned old, scarecrow turnips, and Billy Crystal during our year of animation with Hayao Miyazaki's 2005 film, Howl's Moving Castle. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a spaceship. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. People of the realm of tension. It's the invasion of the podcast. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? And welcome to Invasion the Podcast, where I try to take over the world one listener at a time. My name is Paul, and somewhere hopping on one wooden leg is Steve in the distance. Oh, that was supposed to be a leg? I don't know what it was. It could have been a tor- it could have been an elongated torso. I have no idea. I, I was making a sex joke. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. Turn a turn a well hung turn up. That's probably what I should have said in my intro. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be talking our, our, our year of animation. Uh, we're finally delivering on the promise of getting into other like like um, parts of the world and other other filmmakers as opposed to sticking with Transformers. So uh, we've talked about doing some Studio Ghibli before and some Miyazaki films. Um, now we have. So uh, we're going to talk about Howl's Moving Castle from two thousand four, two thousand five. Um, but before we do this, uh, Steve had teased um, like on our Facebook page that normally when we do animation, we don't talk about news. But Steve's just trying. He has news, 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 news. Good news, everyone. Okay, Steve, talk about all the Batman news right now, please. So I just I think it's funny because last week we had the discussion in which I was like, well, what you know, I, I realize nostalgia is a dangerous drug, but what would you like to see come back and be made uh, currently as a continuation or a new film starring a, a character that you love? Um, and your answer was uh, Liam Neeson and Darkman. And I went to my go-to, which I was like, ah, I would love a world in which Michael Keaton gets to be Batman again. And then Tuesday, like somebody was looking into my brain, they announced, well, so it's not official yet. These are all still rumors, but I feel like technically the uh, Doctor Strange 2 uh, Sam Raimi thing is still technically a rumor, even though I think everybody's just accepted that he's doing it. I don't know if there's been an official announcement on that, but... The big news is Michael Keaton is in talks to return uh, as Batman in not only a Flashpoint movie, but the possibility of other films as well. And I was so happy. Yeah, that's um, it's, it's great. That's it's, it's fun news. Yeah, I mean, honestly, in a world where like every day is just bad news all the time, it felt really good to have something good pop up. Um, I realize that, uh, you know, we don't know what the extent of his role will be. We don't really know what version of Batman he'll be playing. It was pointed out on our Facebook that, you know, Flashpoint deals with Thomas Wayne, who had uh, become Batman on an alternate timeline or alternate Earth. DC loves its alternate Earth. Um, And there was, you know, they're like, hey, it could be a possibility that he's playing Thomas Wayne, Batman. And I'm like... That's a very good point, but 
I think honestly, if you have a movie and they released it, if you if you're not aware of this, that story broke 30 years to the day that Batman's released. So I kind of feel like or 31 years. Sorry. Well, I kind of feel like there's some synergy going on there. If you get um, Michael Keaton back and and talks to play a Batman, it better be Bruce Wayne because I think being Thomas Wayne would be a cop out. So I, and also with the notion of flashpoint, then you can do whatever, you know, like we, we talked about, this was, I don't know, many, 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 many moons ago before I met Steve. And then we bonded our, our true, true friendship. Uh, we talked about flashpoint on the show, the comic arc, um, and how it had like 87 issues, but we talked about Thomas Wayne as being, um, Batman and it was cool. It's just, if you're going to bring back Michael Keaton, I want, I want that Bruce Wayne. I want that Batman. Like that, if you, if you're going to do it, do it right. And I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, I don't know. I, I realize too, that some of this is tempered with, it's not official and we don't really know what's going to be happening, but I don't know. It just, it, it made me so happy. And, you know, if you put, if you put a gun to my head and we're like, you know, who's your favorite Batman? I'm probably going to say Kevin Conroy, but Michael Keaton's sort of the first love like he's I got into comics a year before that Batman movie came out. And it, it's just, it, you know, he's he's for all intents and purposes. And I I, hate, I keep saying that recently. I think it's because people uh, also keep saying intensive. And I, I don't know why it's not stuck in my brain. But, you know, he was my Batman. He, he was the guy for some people. It's Adam West. For others, it's, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like, you know, George Clooney's my Batman, I, I guess. But uh, what if what if your Batman <laughs> is a Christian Bale that's also a Birdman that was right. also Michael Keaton playing a Birdman one time? Man, this is going to get twisty tonight. It is going to get weird tonight because there's a lot of Batman uh, throughout uh, this film uh, that we're going to be talking about coming up. But, uh, yeah, so I'm just excited. I wanted to get it out there like. You know, I, I I told my wife, and she's like, "Oh, that's cool," but like, you know, I needed to gush. I needed to unburden myself of the the, you know, excitement that I have for it. And I, I'm I'm really hoping that DC sticks the landing because I know that we have not been the kindest to their films. So knock on wood. I mean, to be fair, uh, you know, Wonder Woman, uh, Shazam, um, Aquaman were all steps in the right direction. So. Hopefully they keep it going that way. So yeah, and I feel like what would be nice is if they talk to like um oh who's the, like the guy overseeing all the CW stuff like Greg Berlanti because uh, they do all like the like they just did like the an infinite crossover what they kept bringing in a bunch like they brought in Burt Ward um like they did all these different nods to all the other DC properties with their crossover like on Infinite Earths or whatever speak to him about like hey we have limited space in this film what would be the best way to serve this character and this actor? And I'm going to guess they're going to give you some good notes. Yeah. And I, I think one of the interesting things too is, is the story speculated that there's talk about Keaton's Bruce Wayne being sort of a Nick Fury type, uh, where he's sort of orchestrating a lot of things in the background and possibly being a mentor. And there was talk about that being in conjunction with a Batgirl film, which I'm all for. Um, I, I loved Batman Beyond, so I'm hoping that they go that route if they do. Um, but there, there's still a piece of me that that wants that grizzled old Batman 
<laughs> that Dark Knight Returns Batman and, and a Burton version of that just to see what how weird it would be and who the villains would be and you know I, I don't know I, I'm I'm excited I, I'm very curious to see where they take this and uh, hopefully it's all for the better and as much as I loved uh, you know Spider-Man Homecoming one of the things that I thought was a high point for me was Michael Keaton in it. So yeah, no, I'm very I, happy I agree. to see him returning. Um, so two side thoughts. One, um, they should talk to Phil Lord and Chris Miller about how to handle crossover stuff too. Like they, they need to pay King's ransom back that truck up and be like, Hey, you guys have found a way to thread a lot of needles. How do we go do this? Right. And then, um, then B, the other thing I was going to lean into here, like not to keep going on about news, but Hey everybody, this is going to be a weird episode. Tuck in. Um, it's also worthy of mentioning that Joel Schumacher passed away, who was the director of, um, Batman forever and Batman and Robin, the two films that came after the Burton films that Keaton was not part of. Um, so it's a very Batman ish week, um, in a weird way. And also, again, we're going to be talking about Christian Bale in a minute too. So, I just want to mention with Schumacher, um, people can make fun and I'm in a lot of ways, rightfully so, but the guy had some good movies. So maybe he had more misses than hits, but the dude, like he had some good films, so you can't completely dismiss his catalog. Um, I also don't disagree with his notion of maybe making things a little bit more campy, like, and have a little bit of fun with Batman. But I think the pendulum swung way too far in the other direction. Like I liked Batman forever. Um, it's a dumb, fun movie and it knows what kind of film it is. Batman Robin just, it burns my skin every time I think about it. So it's, it's interesting that you say that. Um, cause I'm actually right in line with you. I, I've taken shots at, at Schumacher because they're easy um you know my wife loves George Clooney so like that's her Batman but uh uh you know she always makes the joke about oh George Clooney's the best Batman whatnot so I I've I've taken my shots at, at Schumacher in the past and it was never like how dare he it was just like oh it's a terrible movie uh when you say that he's got some some um, more misses than hits. I don't think that's accurate. I think he's got more hits than he does misses. Okay. Um, he, a time to kill is an amazing film. Falling uh, down is great. Falling um, down is great. Eight uh, millimeter. Yeah. Sorry. Eight millimeter is uh, like, it's, it's a dark ride, but it's really, really good. So you're sorry. You're mentioning flatliners. Yeah. Flatliners is a really strong film. I don't, I haven't revisited it in a long time, so I don't know that I've judged it as a non teenager. So it's, it's, Fortunately, been over twenty years, but uh, Lost Boys, like Lost Boys, that's that's the big one. I mean, if he made nothing else in just Lost Boys, it's a classic. Like Lost Boys is like when I think of eighties vampire movies, Lost Boys is the first one I go to. Yeah, so I mean. But he made he 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 made a lot of films. So we, we, <laughs> so what I'm saying yeah. is like I, I think I think his ratio is a little a little off, but whatever. Like you know. Not. I mean, he did the Wiz for God's sake. Did he do the Wiz? Okay, like, then uh, great. I, I I'll give credit uh, there too. A writer on the Wiz. Oh, sorry, okay. he directed it. But I'm just looking over his his you know his credits and you know he was a big player and he did a lot of stuff. And I also agree with you on Batman Forever. I I, I oddly enough, it was on sale for four ninety nine in Vudu over the weekend, and I bought it before he passed. And then, like Monday, the news came out that he passed away, and I was like, "Oh, that's sad." I I remember 
seeing Batman Forever in the theater and just walking out and being like, oh, my God, that movie was so much fun. I'm like, he 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 was able to balance out like the darker stuff, that the weirder stuff, I should say, that Burton was doing and kind of lighten it up. Um, and I understand that now it probably seems hokey and and kitschy and, you know, Batman and Robin definitely goes even further into that. Um, but there's some things that I like about Batman Forever. There's some great just scenes of Batman fighting dudes there, yeah. which I realize isn't a big, you know, <laughs> I, I liked, I liked, this was like peak Jim Carrey, like just like chewing the scenery. Like I, he's not, he's not the Riddler that people knew, but he was also kind of like leaning into the sixties kind of like ridiculousness of that. Um, I know he and Tommy Lee Jones did not get like, get along on the set, but Tommy Lee Jones also leans into the ridiculous. Like, th- like there's some fun to be had there. I like, uh, some of the soundtrack is really good too. Like the, cause this was back when they'd put out like a, a CD, you know, with like all the different songs. Um, there's a flaming lips track on there too, that I, I dig a lot. I mean, clearly that movie, that movie was big enough and important enough to basically make the amazing Spider-Man two, uh, Jamie Foxx's electro basically have the Edward Nigma treatment, you know? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I just, it's, it's just, there was just, um, there's the whole bit with, with Jim Carrey being like, Hey, teach me how to like, teach me how to punch. And like, he ends up breaking his hand, trying to punch somebody. That's a funny bit. Um, and then the whole notion of like Edward Nigma trying to like, he wants to be Bruce Wayne so bad. And the way Jim Carrey has his body language the entire time. Um, it's just, it's, it's a fun movie. And I feel like and you can speak to this and this is not going to be this episode. This is going to be probably another episode down the line where, Done the right way, Batman can be fun, and this film is fun. Oh, absolutely. Like, I actually, you know, I grew up as somebody who uh, watched the Batman 66 series and reruns, and then when 89 Batman came around, I was like, yeah, I only want the comics version or this darker version of Batman, and then Batman Forever comes out, and, like, it, it tried to balance the two, and... A, I'm somebody who I love the Batman 66 series. I think, is it my ideal Batman? No, but God, it's so much fun. Even today, 50 years later, that show holds up and is so much fun to watch. I, I can't imagine not watching that show and not enjoying it. Um, I, I I don't know. Maybe kids today wouldn't enjoy it, uh, but I don't know. It's, it's just such a fun show. And then... Um, in line with, you know, Batman forever. What I was talking about, he gets some things, right. Um, Batman isn't out killing people, which is the one big problem that I have with Burton's vision is that, you know, Batman blows up the access chemicals plant with guys in, inside of it. He tries to like shoot the Joker from a plane, uh, shooting both bullets and, you know, rockets at him. He, uh, lets the dude die, uh, fr- at the top of the tower that he's fighting and like kicks him off uh, by the head. He grabs him uh, with his legs and, and tilts him over uh, the side of the uh, bell tower. So like Batman's actively killing people in Batman Returns. He puts a he puts a, a bomb on a dude, kicks him down a well. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of Batman killing, which is one of the things that I do not like in those films. In Batman Forever. Batman actually tries to save Harvey. It's, it's actively not killing people. So I, I much more appreciate that aspect of it because it's such a huge piece of this character. Um, 
and I know that uh, I still think that there's a way to do a contemporary Robin who's a 10 to 12 year old boy and do it right. But I completely understood the chance, the choice of being like Dick Grayson. I think he's supposed to be 17 in the movie so that he can be Bruce's ward or whatever. But I get making him an older guy. And that suit that he's wearing is based on my favorite Robin, which is Tim Drake. So I was like, oh, my God, they're doing the Tim Drake Robin I, suit. That's I, so awesome. I didn't mind. It was a Chris, o, Chris O'Connell, Chris O'Donnell. Um, Chris O'Donnell, Chris, yeah. yeah. I didn't mind his portrayal because he was like the cocky son of a gun that like as much as like you know, Batman's like, you can't do that. It's like, that's him, you know, and mm-hmm. whatever. But it, yes, uh, one, we're, we might get more Keaton as Batman and two, Joel Schumacher passed away and he did do some fun things as a director and some challenging things. Um, I think falling down has aged well, but maybe not for the reasons people think it has. And maybe you should revisit that because it's, it's a powerful film. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Robert Duvall is awesome in that. I mean, Michael Douglas is amazing in it. And eight millimeter, it's you get you get good Nick Cage in that, and you also get an early Joaquin Phoenix. It's it's a dark film, but they're, they're, Schumacher had some good stuff. And we, I just figured since you were mentioning other Batman news, it would just seem appropriate to speak of his passing and go watch a Schumacher film. Like the guy had the guy had some talent. Yeah, and I'm glad to see that people weren't just bemoaning Batman and Robin because I, I admit when I when that movie came out, I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. I still don't like that movie, but Schumacher had such a huge career, and there's so many wonderful films in his filmography. I'm glad to see that he wasn't just strictly remembered as the guy who almost killed the Batman franchise. Well, I, so I'll say this too that like in the Burton vision of Gotham, it was there's a little like the the building seemed a little big, and then Schumacher's like, yeah, but what if we make them like go to infinity? Like they ever Gotham kept getting taller and leaner, like lankier and lankier as you went along. Where it's like, is there even like a floor to the city? Like it kept getting taller and taller. Um, I also know this is the one film Batman and Robin was the one that uh, like riff tracks they didn't want to do, but enough people asked for it. They're like, fine. And they did it. And they're just like upset the entire time while riffing the movie. So that, you know, if you, if you guys have not seen that film in a while, maybe watch it with the riff tracks, but they're just so angry the entire time doing it. It's really funny. Yeah. And I, I don't want to spoil what we're going to be talking about next in, Unfortunately, this year somehow has turned into the year of Batman. Un, you know, every year's uh, Batman year on the show, Steve. Let's be honest. Unannounced, uh, you know, or, or unintentionally, I should say. But uh, you know, I would totally be up for because we just hit the 25th anniversary of Batman Forever. Uh, you know, in the future, talking about it. So, if you want to revisit that film, I would be all up for it. Well, just teasing what like I'm not going to tell people what our next episode's going to be. Yes, let's. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem revisiting Batman uh, forever. Uh, Enigma, Enigma. Um, all right. So before we get to House Moving Castle, you wanted to mention something about box office totals. This is a fun, like this is a fun thing that I know you're you mentioned to me in passing before we start recording. But I want it because we talked last week about your adventures at the drive-in. Um, I think this is something worthy of mentioning. Yeah, so do you know what the two top grossing films were at the box office last weekend? No. Jaws and Jurassic Park. (laughs) So uh, I wanted to mention this because Autorama Drive-In, which is uh, a local drive-in here, um, 
I mentioned last week uh, on the episode, on our last episode, I should say, that uh, we went there for uh, a double feature of Goodies and Back to the Future. Last weekend, they did a Jaws Jurassic Park double feature. And Autorama Drive-In was the fifth highest grossing movie theater in the country last weekend. Let that sink in. Like, that's that's crazy. And I'm hoping that it's teaching people the value of classic films and what they can do on the big screen. You know, I realize that there isn't a lot more that they could put out recent release-wise. But I'm hoping that we don't go back to business as usual. Now credit to Autorama, they do, normally they do a retro uh, Tuesday throughout the entire summer with different films, and they always do their um, retro horror weekend in October, but I'm really hoping that there's a a new appreciation for, A, drive-ins, so I hope that this means that you know, people will keep this trend going. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also hope that, uh, you know, we get to see more of these retro releases because some of these films, you know, are, I've never seen Jaws on the big screen. And seeing it on the big screen was wonderful. Like, it was really a treat to get to sit, see it on the big screen. And I don't know. I, I hope that there's more of an appreciation for these retro films and they get more love. That's a good call. So maybe, uh, maybe as we get a little deeper into the summer, which, you know, <laughs> we're like a week and a half away from July 4th, this, like there was a time, what was it in the 1800s where there was, um, like a volcano that erupted that caused so much ash to go into the atmosphere that like most of the, the Northern hemisphere didn't have a summer technically. And they talk about the year without a summer. I'm feeling like because of everything going on, 2020 is going to be the year without a summer, like in a lot of ways. So, I need to get on get on the page, same page with you, and see about the driving stuff. And um, I need to go out once. Like I, I'm still really, 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 really apprehensive about going anywhere um, right now, especially. Um, and I, I know we tipped your hand a couple episodes ago about our political leanings, but science shouldn't be political. And um, I went to the grocery store today. I was the only person wearing a face mask and gloves. I don't know why that's a, why that's not hand in hand. No pun intended. I also went to uh, Staples for a half second, and you know, most of the people had masks, but not all. I can't imagine going to a social event at any type of capacity with like worrying about others. But a drive-in sounds like that's probably where I could end up at and feel comfortable. So I need to do that once. I mean, the other thing that I'll say too is is. Uh... I mentioned on the previous episode that, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were um, giving them our money. So we ordered like, I don't know, it was a ridiculous amount of food that we ordered. But uh, this last weekend, we only got nachos and like this is like a double set of nachos. Like it was way more nachos than it needed to be Uh, a medium popcorn. And then my wife loves pickles. So they had like a full dill pickle. It was eleven dollars. (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, that's that's actually surprisingly cheap. But was the, what, yeah. what, sorry, I'm, let me rephrase. Was the pickle eleven dollars? Was everything that you ordered eleven dollars? No, everything was eleven. Oh well, I think my like God! 11. Like you go to the movie theater, 
the moment you say like nachos, you might as well be like, well, I don't, can I mortgage my house? Like, you know, right. like, so, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, before we get into the movie, let me, let me just, can I, can I, can I speak about my weekend for a half second? Like, and by half second, I mean 37 minutes after. So, uh, cause we've approached the 20 minute mark on the episode. So everybody, you know, if you're, if you're following along at home and you're drinking, this is where we normally are before we get to the main subject. Anyway, um, I actually paid full price for a same day release film, which I meant to do for invisible man, but I didn't, I meant to do it for birds of prey and I didn't. Um, I threw my money down on the Bloomhouse film. Um, you should have left with Kevin Bacon. I think you may have seen some advertisements for this. Uh, yeah, I watched the trailer like it, we have an Apple TV, so Apple TV, like anytime there's a new release, just automatically puts it up in, and it's not quite as bad as Netflix, but like if you're just idling and you're in their watch section, it'll throw up whatever the trailer okay. is in the background without sound most of the time, but you can click it to watch full trailer kind of thing. I was unaware of the film until uh, last weekend, like it, or last week it popped up and I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know what this is. So I... I've seen the trailer, but I don't know much beyond that. Um, yeah, so I paid twenty dollars total. But so here, here's where I'll, here's where I'm gonna come out. Like I'll say this: the movie's okay. It's not great. Kevin Bacon's great in it. It's him and the director that did Stir of Echoes, which Stir of Echoes is a great film. Um, but like where I thought the film was going and where it ended up, that's on me. That's fine. It didn't quite give me what I was looking for, but paying 20 bucks knowing that I was sitting there with, with myself and, and my wife because um, it, the, to back it up a half second, I ended up uh, buying um, a video game called The Last of Us Part 2, which Steve and I don't video, video game much, but you would like the story of The Last of Us, which is this post-apocalyptic uh, America because of this fungal infection that's uh, caused people to turn into weird mushroom monsters. So it's like, what does society do after that? It's, it's dark and messed up and interesting, but I'd been playing it for a few hours. I'm like, I'm just going to watch a movie right now. So I put that in without her even telling her I was doing this. So she, I knew very little about it. She knew less. Um, so that was a fun experience to watch a film that she knew nothing about going in, paid the 20 bucks. So break it down ten per $10 per person. Had I physically walked to the theater and took my time to do this, I think I would have been more frustrated. However, watching it at our own home and being able to pause it if we need to grab a drink or whatever, I'm not as angry at spending $20 on the film. It's okay. It's not great. But knowing my track record of going to the theater for films that I'm really excited for, this was the best possible outcome for this film kind of coming across the line as like middle of the road, if, if that makes sense. Like I was like, nah, it was okay. Maybe overspent for it, but I didn't really know what I was getting into and we enjoyed it. So like I would put it as, um, I, I think I even rated it on a letterbox. I think I put it at like three and a half stars. Like I think three is middle. So I just gave it just a smidge more because Kevin Bacon's great in it. But it, when it starts getting weird, it takes too long to get like the, the good weird. But that, that was my weekend was playing a video game with fungus people and watching a Kevin Bacon film that didn't quite land all the time, but it was okay. So, so that makes sense. Actually, uh, you know, recently, uh, Kathy and I were talking about just going back to the theater and how we're both reticent. And I'm, it turned into a discussion of, uh, we have a friend who lives over in the UK and he posted like, Oh my God, they're throwing the empire strikes back, back into theaters uh, to get people to the theater uh, here in the UK. And I, I just I was like, 
Like, you know what? I'm like, A, I don't understand why they're not doing that here in the States. But B, <laughs> uh, my initial thought was, I'm like, ah, I'm like that's one I, I, I have to admit, it would probably, you know, be something that I would have to really wrestle with about whether or not I would want to go to the theater to see it. And then she brought up the, the point that, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, I'd be making that decision not just for myself, but for both of us. And yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it in that way. That's true. You're, um, you're 100% right. Like, you got to consider, like, if you, if whatever choice you make, you got to consider your household right now, right? So you're absolutely right. And then, uh, you know, that turned into a discussion about the fact that, like, the movie that's coming out soon that I'm super excited for is Bill and Ted Face the Music. So I'm like, I'm like, God willing, it's either, you know, released, you know, day and date uh, to digital uh, as the same time as playing in theaters. I'm like, I'm hoping Autorama has it that weekend. I'm like, they could do a double feature with the original or even the sequel and show the second one or and show the new one. I'm like, because those are the two ways that I would want to watch it is either at home. I would spend the 20 bucks, no questions asked to watch it or go to the drive-in. So those are the two ways that I want to see it. But I'm like, I don't know that I can go to the theater. I, I'm still in a place where I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I see that people at Drug Mart, you know, can't seem to bring themselves to wear a mask. You know, like three quarters of the people that I see there, uh, and I'm not including employees. I'm talking about just people walking in there just haphazard and don't care. I'm like, Dude, like, uh, so... I, and not to make this like, you know, bitching about society yeah. cast. I mean, that's not, you know, eh, whatever. You know, if you guys are with us this far, you know, but I was at the grocery store today, like I mentioned earlier, and I was in the frozen food section and I saw a lady in front of me that, um, she was bald and had a mask on. And I, again, who knows? Maybe she loves to just like rock the, the baldness, right? And they, I, no, no judgments here. From what I'm seeing, that tells me that person's probably immune uh, compromised. And I'm not going to go up and ask them like, hey, how's your immune system? But they're looking at a case and I'm like, I'm going to give them time and space because if they're here at the store, they're getting food. That's what they need. While I was waiting for them to make a decision, and I'm not upset about this because, I don't know, I care about shit. Um, I end up seeing out the corner of my eye, like this ghost show up behind me and it's another goddamn person right beside me. That it's like, like trying to tuck in near the door. I am at the frozen food aisle. It's like, can you back off for a second? Cause I'm trying to make sure this other person has proper space. Like it just, you know, thank goodness I was wearing my mask because I'm able to make a lot of angry faces under a mask, you know, passive aggressively. But it's like, just, just give it a moment, you know, like, so that's neither here nor there, but uh, yeah, it's just the whole notion of going to theaters. Like if so, if Bill and Ted shows up and like video on demand, I will give them $20 because that it took them forever to get this made because of funding. I want to at least, you know, show my appreciation that we're getting another movie, you know? So I think it's going to go to VOD. It probably has to, right? I think the only, the only one right now that I feel like that, just because of the ego involved is tenant with Christopher Nolan. Like he is like adamant. This film has to be in the theater because, um, I don't know, like, sure. I mean, I respect that vision, but don't be upset if you don't get the money that you expect out of it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I understand the cachet that comes along with his, his name and a product that he makes. 
but I have to wonder at some point if Warner's is like, it's a lot of, you know, yes, you bring us a lot of money, but we also spent a lot of money on this film. Like it's, it's gotta be a tough spot that they're in because they want to make the most amount of money that they can from the film and just putting it in theaters when, and who knows, we'll probably be proved wrong. And like the people who aren't wearing masks anyways, are going to crowd the theaters and <laughs> go see movies. So I don't know. I, Can I we just read in the film tetanus then. And they'd be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You got tetanus. <laughs> no, but you might be right. But my point is, is like, fine. If you're going to tell me that I get the ability to sit with my, you know, ridiculously large TV in my home and put a pair of headphones on because that's the only way I feel like to, to truly get into like a Nolan film. Like you need that surround sound, you need it punching in the face because seeing Inception in the theater was amazing, you know, like, and in his Batman films, like say what you want about the last one, but like seeing like the dark night in the theater with that sound system was amazing. I would pay $20 to see Tenet and, you know, in my home, with the blinds down, like all the lights off, middle of the night, have my headphones on, you'll get my money. Like, it just, I I don't trust people right now. And I hate to say that because I want to believe that we all have our, our own best interest, not best interest, that we're aware of those around us. But I'm seeing daily that that's not the case right now. And that's not where I wanted to go with this, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Well, I, I just want to say, you know, as we wrap up, I, you know, you and I talk about the theater experience a lot on this show. It's not like this is the first time this has come up. <laughs> yeah. We're oh, both proponents of going to the theater. Before the virus, I realized that no one gave a shit about how I, like, about my experience in the theater. <laughs> no. Oh, but I'm saying that you and I have both been big pro- proponents of, like, oh, getting to the theater and seeing these films and, yeah. you know, experiencing them this way, where I, I think that, uh, you know, there is a, a majority now that's, you know, could walk away from the theater. Actually, a friend of ours, Rob, who is, I don't even know how many movies he saw in the theater before COVID shut everything down. I'm going to say a hundred and that's starting at January. Yeah. Like he, he would literally go and sit and watch seven movies a day on a Saturday. Yeah. He loved, so he, like, he loves movies and that's what he does. Yes. And even right. he's like, at this point, he's like, I don't know if I'll go back to the theaters. So, it, it's it's an important topic. It's certainly something that, you know, it's not like this is something that we're just willy-nilly approaching or we're like, oh, we're going to try and push our, uh, you know, our views on science onto you, the listeners. It's just, it's part of the discussion. So I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this turns out, particularly when cases are spiking again. <laughs> like we've, yeah, I mean, we've just gone yeah. from... You know, oh, we're reopening to you. Oh, everything's going to shit all of a sudden real quick. Yep. So, so yeah, that's happening again right now. So, um, yes. So, um, we're number one, not in the ways we want, but yes. Anyway, that is our pseudo news segment, which there was, it's not pseudo news. It was real news. Uh, let's just get into our discussion about, um, a film from 2004, 2005, you know, back when things were good, that's not true. Um, you know, <laughs> Oh, the world's been a it's been a dumpster fire forever. But anyway, let's just let, let's listen to the trailer for Howl's Moving Castle, uh, and then we'll talk about it for our year of animation. From 
from master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, the director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. That's really me, isn't it? An enchanted moving castle. This is a magic house. And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, journey to amazing new worlds. Find me in the future! Aboard Howl's Moving Castle. All right, so Howl's Moving Castle, um, it, U.S. release date was June 12, 2005. Uh, number one film, just because I think it's fun to go back and look at this, that weekend was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Who, who's thought of that film recently? I haven't. That's just, we know that Brad, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie got together then. Great. I have not seen the film. Have you, have you seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith? So I, I haven't seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, when I think of 2004, the movie that immediately jumps into my head is Spider-Man 2. I probably saw that at least three times in the theater that year. But uh, Mr. and Smith, Mrs. Smith, I did not make it to the theater for, nor did I make it for this. So the weird thing is, so this was released in Japan in 2004, but it came out here in 2005. So um, I didn't even – you're right, Spider-Man. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Uh, it's it's a weird thing that in the early 2000s, it's like I I remember graduating college and then, you know, moving to Cleveland and having a job. But like after that, it gets really fuzzy. Like it's it's hard for me to pinpoint like things um, uh, with the exception of like, oh, yeah, I did see that. It's like I, I couldn't tell you when I saw it. But yeah, 2005, I was in uh, my mid 20s and, you know, not doing anything go with my life working in retail. Um, so that was number one film was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Number one song was We Belong Together by Mariah Carey. I have no idea what that song is. I'm sure it was bothering me at the time. Um, when this was released in the U.S., uh, it made $4.7 million. I ended up uh, making like $200 plus million worldwide. Uh, it was the 180th highest grossing film in the U.S. in 2005. That, you know, that sounds bad. Like, but again, it was a, it was a foreign release film in the U.S. animated. Uh, before we get into the film itself, I, I have the box office mojo from that year. Um, I just want to roll through what we remember as being like the big ones for that year. So just one second, let me find that. So, 2005, Steve. What was the number one film? You know this. 2005. Yeah. Oh, uh, Revenge of the Sith, right? Yep, you're right. So Revenge of the Sith was number one. Uh, and I'm just going to, this, this list will include some other, like I'll get through some of the other animated films that came out that year and then we'll get more into this in a second. Number two, Harry Potter and the uh, Goblet of Fire, War of the Worlds. Who has talked about that movie since it came out? I saw that in the theater, but that's the Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg movie with the, the shit ending. Um, yeah, I saw that in the theater yeah. as well. Like the first half of that wasn't bad, that it's just like, yeah, but what if we just walked it all back? That's that movie. But anyway. 
Uh, yeah. no, number four is Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That was 2005, uh, really? Yeah. Um, I feel like wow. that would give us uh, the Lazy Sunday, which, you know, that would, that would uh, from Lonely Island at that point. <laughs> uh, Wedding Crashers was number five. Holy shit. I saw that in the theater. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Tim Burton film, was number six. I thought that was a, a disappointment. I guess I was wrong. I thought that was like in the 2010s era. Yeah. Like I didn't realize it was that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So number seven was Batman Begins with our with our lead here, Mr. Bale, um, which is weird to think of this coming out the same year as the film we're about to talk about. Uh, Madagascar, which is an animated film that I hate with the, the passion of a thousand <laughs> fiery suns. Not oh, that it's got to move it, move it. <sighs> Not that the movie is bad. It just leans into all the reference and like that kind of terrible jokiness. And also this is when I was working at Blockbuster at the time. And we were like, I've talked about this previously on the show. We're only allowed to show like G and PG movies. One of my coworkers, who I also hated with the passion of a thousand sons, she thought this movie was cute. So every time I come in, it was goddamn Madagascar. So yeah, that no, I don't want to talk about that anymore. So anyway, number nine is Mr. And Mrs. Smith. Ten is Hitch. Like all right, um, let me. I'll just roll through the top twenty just so give us uh, okay. some placement here. Hitch. That's the Will Smith, Kevin James film. King Kong, the Peter Jackson one, which. I also felt like it was supposed to be kind of a flop, but it number eleven. Sorry, it was number eleven for the year. I think um, it's a flop compared to like Lord of the Rings. But that's I don't fair. Think yeah, it's technically a flop. Uh, the remake of The Longest Yard with um, Adam Sandler and uh, well, uh, Burt Reynolds is in there too, which is actually a fun movie. I, I've not seen it. But it's fun. I, it's actually pretty good. Um, number twelve, Fantastic Four with uh, with Captain America as the Human Torch. There, that was number thirteen. Um, number 14 was meet the Fockers. I've not uh, made it all the way through that. What meet the Fockers or fantastic four. Fantastic four. Sorry. Uh, um, yeah. Spoiler. They beat doom. Um, but meet the Fockers, which is the, the, the sequel to meet the parents, which I've not seen this one, but it meet the parents was fun. Chicken little. That was the Disney produced CG animated film with Zach Braff in the lead. This is before uh, Disney gave up on making their own anim- like CG animated films and just let said Pixar, let's just buy you and make you make your you make us look good. Is is this is 2005 the same year as Garden State? And I know you probably don't have that. I'll, in your I'll coat, find it. But... Just give me a second. I'll see here. Oh, let me see here. So, 16 was the film Robots. I'm sorry, Robots, which was uh, 20th Century Fox that had uh, uh, Rob Williams in it. That was an animated film as well with the Robots. Uh, I cannot. I've never seen it. Can't remember anything I, about it. Not seen it either. The Pacifier with uh, with Vin Diesel. So you got your Groot in there. That was a Disney produced film. The 40 year old Virgin was the same year as Howl's Moving Castle being released in the U S. Um, and then uh, Million Dollar Baby and Walk the Line. So you said Garden State, right? So I'm just going to look this up super quick because uh, we're talking Only about... Only two- because like, I feel like Zach Braff was like, really on the rise at that time. 2004, so. it came out the year before. So okay. would make sense that he'd be, be picked. I, I have nothing against Zach Braff. We talked about his uh, podcast last episode, and I've not listened to it. I need to. Um, I, I love Zach Braff a great deal. It's just that I know Chicken Little was one of those pro- Disney, like Meet the Robinsons was another Disney produced animated film that like, you know, after a while, they're just like, no, 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 no. Pixar can do these, <laughs> you know? So, 
Um, no, I just I, as somebody who loves Scrubs, I remember him just blowing up after Garden State. So yeah, that's why I was like Chicken Little around that time makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So this film, like, but this was not intended necessarily to make a bunch of bank over here. Uh, it did really well, like, and you know, it's home country and overseas. Uh, ended up like making a lot of money for Studio Ghibli. Uh, it, and it actually ended up uh, being nominated for Best Animated Picture and losing to Wallace and Gromit uh, and the Were-Rabbit or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Um, Do you happen to have the other films that were like nominated that year by me, chance? I'm going to look it up right now. That's a good question. I, I'm just curious. I, I, so I, I know very little about Wallace and Gromit. I have not seen the film and I have not seen... I think I've seen maybe like a handful of pieces of animation, but I know that that's stop motion and it's very interesting. So at least it wasn't something like it lost to, you know, I don't know. I'm not willing to shit on Wallace and Gromit just because I haven't seen it. But like, you know, had it been like, oh, they they lost. I I can't even think of a. Uh, animated film that would be not worthy of an Academy Award, but all right. So the twenty, the two thousand five Oscars, because that's what was considered here. I think because the release uh, for animated film. Let me find it here because I can't Google right animated feature film. Um, nominees were. That's not right. There's only. Th- I don't. What? No, 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 no. It shows three. That's not right because there's always five, right? So. Um, I, well, I mean, animated animated films has been sort of a bastard category, so I hate to put it that way, but like, okay, you know, no, no. That, so I have I have here for two thousand five, it was Corpse Bride, Howl's Moving Castle, um, and uh, Wallace and Gromit: The Curse of the Were Rabbit. So it was only there was only three nominated for two thousand five. That's very interesting that there wasn't a Pixar film in there because. At least not in the nominations, because when you think of animated films like Corpse Bride, I enjoyed Corpse Bride. It's unfortunately not Nightmare uh, Before Christmas, which mm-hmm. I think is its biggest unfortunate problem. Um, and like I said, I just got done saying I hadn't seen Wallace and Gromit. But it's interesting to me that there's two stop uh, motion animation films that are nominated and then this. Well, if it, if it means anything here, it looks like 2004 was The Incredibles that won. And then 2006, Cars was nominated but lost to Happy Feet, which was directed by, you know, um, Mad Max for your director, George Miller. Um, so, Well, it might have done better had it not had Barry <laughs> the Cable Guy, but I just believe that. I agree with that, too. And then, like, you go on to 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, you have uh, Ratatouille, Wally, Up, Toy Story 3, and then, um, yeah, a lot of the times it's been either Disney or Pixar winning this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway. You know, and I don't want to derail us here, but I, I do yeah. think this is an interesting thought. Um, we should really consider uh, and see if there's a stop animation you know, film that we want to consider for the year of animation. Because I think we've gone traditionally, for the most part, with 2D animation. I'd be curious to see if. One of us uh, has something that we are leaning towards, but well, it's funny you say that. So the, the the there's three things I'll mention here because I'm I'm all about sidetracking us tonight. This is nothing as House Moving Castle. The film's a delight. Spoiler alert. Uh, it doesn't always make the most sense, but I had a smile on my face the entire time. So that will win every single time. Um, this is not a stop motion film, but 2006. I want to recommend when we get to October, Monster House. If you've not seen that, that film's awesome. 
Oh, yeah. You've brought this up before, and I think I countered with Paranorman because I love Paranorman. Well, that's that's on. that's kind of stop motion, yes. Um, yeah. I've not seen Paranorman. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we could do Paranorman because I've seen uh, Coraline, which that's the same studio. Coraline. Maybe we can do a double feature in October sure. of Monster House and, Cor- and uh, I'm sorry, and no, Paranorman. You know what? Here, here. I'm going to call the shot right now. October, let's do the year animation for four weeks, but it's all horror scary stuff kind of so we got you got your monster house you got your core line you got your paranorman and what would be the lot of a corpse bride i think we could find well, something else maybe right? i would think nightmare before christmas sure I have, are you I have, one of those people I, who considers a christmas movie i don't i think of it as a halloween I, movie i don't care either way here's my admission i've not seen it all the way through and i grew up in a generation that it was just blasted to me in the face because like any girl that was like remotely goth would be all about that and it's it's it just, it, it just kind of kept punching me in the face the entire time so i have kind of this weird like i'm good <laughs> like <a> bit <laughs> with nightmare before christmas but We'll oh, watch it for the what? show. I've never seen. Uh, let's step this back. I've never seen Frankenweenie, and I've I've long wanted to. So that might be a good one to throw okay. in there. I think October. If we just like, what if what if what, what about Wallace and Gromit looking for the were rabbit? What about? <laughs> <laughs> I think we could do a whole animated October. I think we can. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think we know people that might want to chime in. I think this will be a fun October if we get, if this is what we're going to do, let's just do that. If we make it there, is that what you were going to say? I, you know, there's a virus, there's uprising, there's an election coming. Who the hell knows? You know, there's murder hornet supposedly coming. So yeah. Yeah. Let's just, yeah. There you guys, there you go. We just decided October is going to be animated Halloweeny type of things. And I'm going to make Steve watch monster house. He's going to love it. He's going to make me watch Paranorman and Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. And hopefully uh, people don't think I just got shot. Uh, apparently in my neighborhood, uh, the 4th of July happened like two weeks ago and, and people are just still oh, celebrating. Gosh. So yeah, it's been, uh, I, I was trying to go to bed last night. I went to bed at like 10, which is like rarely for me. And I, uh, was watching my TV and there was literally a point where someone set off like a big, like a big industrial firework, like relatively close to my house that it just, it, it, it made my heart jump. And that doesn't happen often. Like in terms of like, yeah, I know the neighbor, like I know Cleveland's kind of stupid with people making noises. Yes. So I'm glad you didn't get shot. I just also feel like, again, why is the people think this is the right time to do this? I have no idea. Yeah, so I just wanted to apologize if uh, there are like loud noises coming in the background that aren't me either like rustling in my chair, <laughs> waving my hands around animatedly, uh, even though this is not visual, or opening a beer. I apologize. So <laughs> you're like you, but you—that's just me opening a beer. That's fine, you know. No. Uh, so, all right, um, Steve, what's the plot of House Movie Castle? Like, please, let's just get back to that. All right, so Howl's Moving Castle, and I'm just going to pull this directly because I have it up in front of me, um, or I did at least. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle is the story of a young girl uh, named Sophie who's cursed by a witch, uh, and she's turned into an old woman. Um, and the love story involves her and a magician named Howl. Although I would, I would ultimately say that I don't know that the love story is the 
biggest piece of this film. I, um, I think so. Sophie's journey is much more important than the love story aspect. Um, but uh, under the curse, Sophie sets out to seek her fortune, uh, which takes her to Howl's Moving Castle, which is a, a giant castle that uh, when it first popped up on the screen, I immediately said Chicken Walker, even though I didn't see both feet <laughs> or that there was four feet. I, oh. I, I, those of you who are Star Wars fans are familiar with the term Chicken Walker. It was the first thing that popped in my head. Um, and basically, uh, they are looking to, uh, break, she's looking to break the curse, but actually she seems kind of quite comfortable with it throughout most of the film. So I'm kind of disagreeing with this synopsis here on, uh, IMDb. Um, but, uh, basically Howl, um, is a wizard and, uh, there are wizard witches in the land who, um, are currently warring with their different factions. Um, and it's a story about Howl's... They play him in the film as being cowardly, but I don't think that he really is. I don't know that I, I get that, but um, it, it's a, about the resolution of uh, her, I would say more so finding herself and who she needs to be as a person mm -hmm. um, and finding her place in the world than anything else. So I actually don't think the love story aspect is that important, but I don't know that that's the best summation, but I would say that it's a story about a young girl who uh, finds her way in the world and meets interesting characters along the way. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to pin down what the plot of this is because it is, it is her being cursed and then her trying to like find, the witch of the waste uh, to get the curse reversed. And then she ends up like finding Howl's moving castle, which is a thing. It's always in the distance. Uh, and then in the meantime, she um, helps a upright, a, uh, a scarecrow that has a turnip head that, that is like enamored with her through the whole thing, um, which is just, again, everybody tuck in. It gets weird. This whole film's weird. It's wonderful. So I should also say before we get further in, we had been talking about doing um, a Studio Ghibli uh, film and Miyazaki film in particular because Studio Ghibli is not just Miyazaki uh, since the beginning of this. However, it had been tough to find these. But with the ad advent of uh, HBO Max, there's a Ghibli section. So if you guys have HBO Go, HBO Max, um, there's like eight, ten films available to watch, and this is one of them. So please, if you have the service, watch this film. It's, it's a delight. That's the first thing. And there's other ones too. Uh, Spirited Away, which won Miyazaki and Oscar before this for uh, you know best animated film. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Porco Rosso. Like there's other ones on there that people have talked about. My Neighbor Totoro. Like there, there's a lot here that I've always, always, always heard about and I've always heard about in like high esteem. I've just never dipped my toes in. Not because I've been like afraid. It's just... I don't know, like I've just never devoted the time, but I feel like if we're doing the inner animation and I feel like we've been as much as we have loved and worthy of time to revisit a lot of Western films that we have like, like the iron giant is still one of my favorite films of the year that I've watched for the first time, like transformers, the movie. I think there's a lot of great there too. Um, I think it's easy for us to swim in waters that we know, but to like diverge. So like, like this was something this studio and Hayao Miyazaki was a uh, director creator that I knew would be worthy of exploration. Not because, I mean, again, we're just a small podcast and I mean, people have written volumes about like that studio and him as a creator, 
But as an experience, Steve and I have never seen this film or really have ever experienced his work. Um, and I wanted to get into it. I think this was as good as time as any. Um, and my gosh, this film as it takes its time, it meanders a little bit. Uh, it is a two hour runtime and it goes in some different directions. However, um, there isn't a frame that is wasted that doesn't show how beautiful their animation process is. There isn't a frame wasted to show the character development, whatever direction they go. And there is so much good humor in this that I was tickled through most of the film. Like I was not expecting this film to make me like cackle um, just hard as much as I did while watching it. Like this, this was a pure delight with some of the, like there's a sequence in the middle of the film where there is a two people walking up a staircase that I was losing it because I was not expecting that turn in this film. Yeah. You just said about four different things and I'm trying to put them all into my brain now. That, so that's what I do. <laughs> what you're talking about so that I can, uh, comment on them. But one is, uh, um, yeah, I have no previous, uh, knowledge of these films. I've not watched any of his films before or the studio Ghibli films. I, uh, have had them, um, uh, recommended, uh, Prince, Princess Monocue, I think is uh, Monoke. Yeah, Mon Monoke. Monoke. Yeah, yes. I've had that recommended to me numerous times and I have not watched it. So that's next on the list after watching this. But, um, uh, when you were talking about, um, the staircase thing, I guess that's the next thing that pops into my head. Um, there's a very good chuckle that happens with a, a, a towel falling off of a character. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. <laughs> well, just um, the, the, so the notion that we the have Sophie, uh, Sophie is the main character who has been turned to this old woman and she's being like, she has to walk up the staircase to go talk to like some royalty for reasons. And there's the witch, of the waste who is, uh, this character that robbed Sophie of her youth, who is now also being forced to walk up these steps, who has relied upon like magic forever. Um, and how she is so struggling and disgusting and like 7,000 chins and Sophie's just marching beside her being like, this kid, come on, you gotta do this. And it's like, it's like, it's like watching like this grumpy old men thing of like, here's two infirmed people that have to walk up these multiple steps and how it just keeps going and going and going. I was just, I, I just enjoyed it. The whole bit too, where Sophie um, was picking up this weird bird dog to pick like to, to go along with her too. Like the whole thing is just played comedic and like, like it's just a delight. It's very screwball in the sense of like, this whole film is dealing with magic and warfare and all these heavy tones, but we're going to deal with this like overweight witch and this prematurely elderly woman carrying a dog up the steps. And it's going to take like four to five minutes and it's, it's hilarious. Okay. Well, I, I clearly was focusing on, and, and those are really great moments of the film. I was focusing on the, uh, the more uh, immature uh, comedy that might appear in the film. And it's, it's brief. It's just that uh, she's helping. Um, Sophie's helping Howl up the stairs after he's had sort of a hissy fit, if you will. Um, but she needs to get him in the bath. And when he came down, he was originally wearing a <laughs> towel. Yes. And then she's taking him upstairs and the towel falls off. And it just, it cuts to like her face 
Um, and it just, it made me chuckle out loud. She's sort of like, um, she doesn't quite know what to do with like this naked man now. And she gets him to the bathroom and she's like, uh, Marco, who I think is the, the little boy who's their assistant. She's like, yeah, Marco, you can take it from here. But, uh, <laughs> no, clearly she looks and sees him nude and she looks cause yeah. she has like this amused look on her face. And then you see how, who we've not even really talked about his character yet. Like he, you see him sludge by, uh, and you see they, his ass crack. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, it's a good, it's a really funny bit. Um, but yeah, the whole bit with the old, like with, um, the witch of the witch of the waste and her also like struggling up these steps. I don't know. I, I was just, I was laughing really hard while watching that. So, um, yeah, I guess I should say if you guys have not watched this film, watch it. It's a delight. Uh, it's, it's challenging. Um, it, there's a lot of questions this film kind of asks. I don't think it answers everything, um, which is usually a big problem for me. It's usually a big problem where it's like, oh, you're not going to pay off a lot of this stuff. I, I don't know about you, Steve, but it's like there's so much here that there's so much goodwill and so much good in this film that I just kind of let this, I, I kind of just like let it all fall to the wayside of being like this, that's this world. It's this world. They all understand what's going on. I may not, but they understand it. And that's good enough for me because I enjoy all these characters and I, I really like where the film's going, which is usually not the way I approach it. Yeah, I have to say, if, if you're somebody who is a normal listener and you listened to last week's episode and you heard like how my brain gets hung up on certain things when watching the film, it follows. It's interesting that I don't seem to have those hangups with this type of film, which normally I would. Um, I immediately sort of embrace the whimsy of this film. And I think that might be the, the best description of this film is, is it's whimsical. It's a film where there's a moving castle that walks uh, like a chicken. Uh, there's a <laughs> and there's four legs, so it's not even the best uh, you know way of putting it. But it's got chicken feet, and it, it looked it like it looked like a Terry Gilliam animation from Monty Python's Flying Circus. That's yeah, the best way I can describe it. It's ridiculously well done. It's gorgeous to look at, but um, there are flights of, of fancy that happen in the film. Um, you mentioned Turnip Pad who's one of my favorite characters. He doesn't have any dialogue until the very end of the film. And it's actually, he's less interesting when we find out who he is, but yeah, he's got so much personality without any dialogue and the way they animate him and the way he interacts with both Sophie. And he's, he's sort of like a, a, a lost dog in us in some ways. Like he's, yeah. he's watching out for her and helping her. And he just keeps turning up uh, whenever she needs him. Um, that type of stuff really, really just like grabbed me and, and I don't want to say like pulled me in, but they were things that I, I quickly realized that like, okay, I can't watch this film in the same way that I would, uh, a, and again, I, I'm not saying that we should always bring the same sort of standards to an animated film as we do a, a, a traditional film, but, it set the world up. I guess that's the best way I can put it. It sets the world up nicely that like at no point am I ever really kind of questioning a lot of what's happening throughout it because I'm like, well, this is part of that world. And they've clearly illustrated it so well that I don't have a problem with it. And um, in thinking about that, I, I also uh, immediately gravitate towards um, how – 
let's just put this on the table. It's beautiful to look at. Oh I mean, my gosh, yes. I, when I think of you know the movies that we've watched this year, um, you know, I've talked about how um, the Secret of Dim is probably one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen animation wise. This is right up there with it, um, and it's a completely different style. It's completely different. But the backgrounds in this film are so gorgeous to look at. They're so well drawn. There's not a bad background in the entire film. And I know that people would say, well, you should be focusing on the animation. But really, I I keep looking at the background stuff and how much detail there is and how they all look like some things look like they're painted with watercolors. Other things look like they're, you know, hard line, you know, straight on drawings and, and how they work in conjunction with each other. They there's well, it's okay. a beautiful film to look at. And so I, to speak to that and I'm, I'm going to cut you off, I apologize, but no, that's so, okay. um, a lot of the moving castle was, were, were digital elements that they brought together, which, um, which I feel like it's, it's a funny, um, continuation of what we talked about last time with the iron giant, where the giant was a digital composition with traditional animation put around it. Uh, which again, to tie it together, Brad Bird directed this, uh, Miyazaki uh, directed this, and um, Disney. Um, I, I don't know the exact details of the, the, the deal, but the Miyazaki stuff and the Studio Ghibli things, Disney would get distribution in like in like America and like other English speaking areas. So they would they would polish the hell out of it because this was kind of like another arm. Like they would reach out and be like, we want this as well. When you guys heard the trailer, it was like distributed by Disney. So they, they recognized like great, the great product. So the castle was a digital asset. Um, The backgrounds were all actually originally drawn by hand and painted prior to being digitized. Uh, And as well as the characters were also drawn by hand prior to being scanned into a computer. So, they found a way to kind of marry everything together while this all still feels wonderfully drawn by hand and the painted backgrounds are painted and they're gorgeous. Um, and the fact that even when they scanned in the characters, they looked too artificial. So they would go kind of go through and smudge it a little bit to make it look more hand-drawn shows that they know what they were doing to get the effect across but not make the computer processing portion of it, which I'm not using those words right, um, kind of like in the background because they were still animating the film. I didn't realize that the castle was a digital asset. The way it was kind of put together and the way it would kind of like rest. When I say Terry Gilliam, if people want to go back and watch the transitions and Monty Python and the Flying Circus, um, there's the way that he would do it is very weird and kind of like paper cutouts. I feel like the castle the entire time was a series of cutouts and to know that it was digital with kind of like in the sense of it being a 3d being blows my mind. Like the only time I really thought about the chicken legs was the very end when it was a single platform operating. Otherwise it looked like a paper, like a paper doll to me and like the best way possible. Well, that's, that's interesting because it's, it's, the first thing that we see in the movie, and I think that that's actually what helps me buy into this world, is that they don't hide the castle. Um, and, like, you kind of get this vibe of, like, okay, this movie is going to take places that aren't realistic, and uh, I'm, I'm settled in for this, this story. I, I think 
and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a very odd uh, tangent here, but when I think of uh, when we watched Ator, <laughs> yes, <I'm>, I'm, <laughs> bring Ator bring it, in, please do. Oh. <laughs> Ator, which was the first uh, year of the knockoff that we watched, uh, the, the first film we watched for a year of the knockoff. Um, I remember specifically commenting that the movie starts with a narration that goes on what for what feels like forever. It's probably like a minute, but they spend all this time trying to like set up this world because they clearly don't have the, the visual assets to try and set it up. But so they're like, we're going to just describe what's happening in this world that you're being thrown into. That's really not that visually interesting with this. You're, I immediately buy it. You see the castle probably what within the first like five minutes of the film. It, it's that. it's very abrupt. Yeah, you're right. It's right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. It 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 brings you right into the film where I'm like, okay, I'm on board. And it's interesting that just something as simple as like we're going to establish this with a walking castle, and it's in the title. But like we're, we're going to put this walking castle into frame. So that you can kind of establish what kind of a world we're going into. I immediately bought it. I didn't have any hangups about like physics or how this works in a real world. I just immediately bought it. And um, maybe I would have gotten that without that shot. But I, I thought it was a stroke of genius to start like, here's Howl's Moving Castle at the beginning of the movie. Everything else is going to just spiral from this yeah and and we end up in this weird this weird space where it's it's a uh it's a european countryside like or maybe even more um i don't know it it feels like european continental but like i like i don't it just i you can't place it but if you it's not it's not japan it's not the u.s i think it's european and the the book the original book is written and like it's set in, in in europe um but then you get these weird, like you get this um, notion that there's a war going on. You see one one side wearing blue, one side wearing red. But you get like this very idyllic, like um, Scandinavian, like looking architecture, um, and it's all very, it's all, and it's also also very steampunk from the jump. Like you see trains running through the town. You see these like glorious warships going out to battle. But you see these weird like um, hummingbird, like two seaters. I don't know how else to describe them. Um, but you see that the world is different. Then you see like these, uh, the, all these vehicles that are kind of like these early motor carts. Um, there's like a double decker bus that's advertising beer. I support that. Uh, but you get to notice that it's kind of steampunky, but there's also this weird vibe running through about like, um, it's not a comma for someone to be like, Oh, you got cursed. It's like, Oh, that's a thing that happens daily, I guess. All right. I guess that happens now. Or the notion of like, so-and-so is a demon. Like there's no blinking at any of that, which puts you in a very weird place while watching it, where none of these quick characters are questioning the technology and their age, that there is advancements in science. And there's also weird shadow dudes that can show up wearing like, um, top hats. Like, it's a weird place to be in. Yeah. And maybe a more apt, um, an apt comparison for me might be that, uh, one of the issues that I had with wizards was that the character development of the main wizard, character development, I'm sorry, character design of the main wizard. 
didn't work for me. Um, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't feel like the rest of the film in a lot of ways. Um, and I, 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 that was one of the stumbling blocks that I had with that film. Um, that and the fact that the character never did anything, but, uh, I mean, he, uh, he belonged in a, um, Hagar, the horrible, or, or what was it? The Wizard of Id? Is that the other? Uh, Wizard of Id yeah. or a, uh, you know, a uh, keep on trucking uh, <laughs> keep on, style meme. Keep on wizarding, you know. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so with this, like, there's never anything that happens visually that takes me out of the story. I think that it establishes its look so extremely well that you never question it. Um, and I, I'm immediately drawn in. And when I say that uh, old Turniped is one of my favorite characters, the fact that they're able to make a character so lovable who could just like bounce around, but he's a scarecrow without any real, you, you don't get much emotion from his face. You don't get much, mm-hmm. um, you know, why well, you get no dialogue until we, the end of the film and find out who he really technically is. It, it it works extremely well. It's almost a, and I, again, I realize that it's easy to make a comparison to the Wizard of Oz because they're both scarecrows, but there's a, a whimsy of this film that I think just works. And um, when a, a giant, when you start your film with a giant castle walking on four legs, it's easy to be like, this is the world I'm in. I accept it. Let's go on this journey. Well, and, and I feel like I in, a, it's in a lot of ways, this film, and again, this is my first time watching it. So who, 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 what do I know? Uh, so John Laster was a producer for the, for the Disney release of this. And I know he's problematic now. However, he was like behind Pixar and was like, we need to get this like released. Um, Pixar has done a lot of good of taking characters that, have a limited range of ability to emote and for you to give a shit about. It even goes to the Pixar intro screen of um, the desk lamp jumping along and showing what it's about. Um, look at like Wall-E. Look at like, I don't know, like throw a dart. Like Pixar is good at like, giving, making you care about things that you shouldn't because they have a limited range of emotion. Hmm. Turnip head feels like that's an early precursor to what Pixar was trying to do the entire time. And he's immediately lovable from the jump. No pun intended. And I didn't expect to feel so attached to a freaking scarecrow with a turnip for a head. And I was, and whenever at the end, whenever, uh, um, they're all sliding down the hillside and you see him, losing bits and pieces of himself. It's like you, you feel that attachment to like, he's Groot where it's like, no, we can't lose turnip head. He's been, he just meant a lot this entire time, but he kept giving himself up for the greater good. And I don't, I, how a film can make me give a shit about a scarecrow with turnip head. I don't know, but this film did it, did it really well. Yeah. And I, I, it actually does it a couple of times. I mean, and I hate to say this, but like it, it takes one of what you perceive to be the film's villains. And while I wouldn't say you love her by the end, you have a, a, a an appreciation for that character and you feel bad for her by the time you get to the end of the film. And not in your typical like, oh, she's the villain who went bad. 
but like she's really confronted like she's kind of cursed in a way with her, with her own curse we'll, we'll we'll put it that way um of of greed of wanting to possess someone's heart and um by the end of the film and it's only through sophie's interactions with her that you you are able to appreciate that character mm-hmm. um i think that that's extremely well done and then the dog that you mentioned who's got this weird <laughs> he's got this weird like I, I don't know what dog they were trying to base him on or if they were like let's create our own type of breed but he's 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 got a grumpy type style face but he makes these weird like Bert, cooing noises he makes, I don't know he makes to... like chicken noises because he has chicken feet like yeah. you know, like he ha- he makes like chicken noises, and, and like when I was watching with my wife, she kept cracking up because the 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 dog wasn't barking, but he was like chirping <laughs> the yeah. entire time. And, and so, like yeah. you're immediately kind of drawn into him because he's interesting visually. But as the plot progresses and you see his sort of devotion to Sophie, he becomes ingrained in in in, in the story and you have a, uh, an affection for him that you're like, why, why do I care about this weird looking dog? <laughs> he, he's not even introduced till halfway through the movie, but you, you begin to love him. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that so much of it's, you know, a, uh, really well-designed, uh, animation, but also, uh, B it's the way they tell their story. And, you mentioned earlier that the film is two hours long, and I will admit that that threw me off because we had to pause the film maybe a half hour in, and I hadn't looked at the runtime beforehand. And I just remember we had to pause it, and I was like, there's an hour and a half of this left. I'm used to most animated films are 78 to 90 yeah. minutes. Uh, yes. So I was like, wow, there's there's a lot left of this. And I'm like how long are the credits? Cause that's, <laughs> that's how, how 28 minutes. No, um, yeah. Where no. you're like, Oh, I'm going to go see an Avengers movie. I got to sit through 14 minutes of credits to get to the end scene. But it's, I don't know. I, I, I was initially like, Oh wow. This is, this is, you know, maybe could be tighter, but at the same time, I think the fact that they let the movie run at a longer runtime allows you to build relationships with those characters. Yeah. So let's, let's speak to real quick about the English voice cast for this. Um, we've been kind of dancing around a little bit. We have Christian Bale as, as how the main, like I say main character. It's not true because, um, we have, I think Sophie's the main character. Sophie's I know the main character. No, you're character. right. You're right. So we have Gene Simmons as Grandma Sophie. We have Emily Mortimer as young Sophie. We have Christian Bale's Hal, Lauren Bacall, as the Witch of the Woods. I didn't realize she passed away in 2014, but it's like, that's great. Blythe Danner as Madame Solomon, who was the, the wheelchair-bound wizard uh, in the One Kingdom. Uh, Joss Hutcherson as Markle, uh, you know, the kid with the beard, which I love the whole transition to him, like trying to appear older, who you might know him from the Hunger Games or Future Man, if you guys watch that. Um, Billy Goddamn Crystal as the voice of Calcifer who steals the entire goddamn movie for me. Um, and yeah, we have, uh, that's, that's, that's basically your main cast. Um, while watching this and I want to talk about Calcifer more, um, 
like we're watching that and, 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 and my wife is like, is that James Woods? I'm like, I don't think so. And I, in the back of my head, I'm like, that has to be Billy Crystal. And I looked it up and it's like, I was like, I told her, I was like, yeah, it's Billy Crystal. She's like, I didn't think he'd do something like this. So this film came out in 2005 in the U S I just want to point out that monsters Inc, a, um, Pixar, um, made movie, uh, produced by uh, Lassiter came out in 2001. So, him being a show stealer for an animated film that, you know, it was already established. I was not expecting to give a shit about a fire demon. Um, as much as I love a wise character in this film, I loved, I loved Billy Crystal as a calcifer in this film. Every time he said anything, it was ridiculous and fun. And I loved him. And he, he showed concern and sadness when it was needed, and I understand that this is a dub, so you could probably wiggle a little bit. Um, once you key on as Billy Crystal, the, he was a delight for the entire film. So we had a similar experience in that Kathy was like, is that Billy Crystal? I'm like, well, if it ain't Billy Crystal, it's somebody who sounds a hell of a lot like him. And then she looked, she immediately went to the IMDb, looked it up. She's like, oh, it is Billy Crystal. I, You know... Uh, I don't, I don't think he's ever come up on this show, but Billy Crystal sort of an actor who he's, he's sort of been in like every decade of like my pop culture existence. We'll put it that way. Okay. So um, in the late seventies, early eighties, he was on a TV show called soap mm-hmm. and he was really funny on that. I don't know. I know uh, I'm dating myself here, but uh, if you guys ever have a chance to check out Soap, it's a wonderfully bizarre show that lasted about four years in the late seventies, early eighties. That was just a takeoff on soap operas. But well, that was, was that was a spinoff from Benson, right? And Billy Crystal's Benson, character Benson actually spun off from Soap. Oh, I'm sorry. I take that yeah, back. No. But Billy Crystal okay. was like one of the first like openly gay characters in television history, right? So the character right. was very yeah. flamboyant. Yeah. And he's really good in that show. Um, and it's it's such a weird show and it was really funny. And and I, I want to say it was on Netflix probably five or six years ago. It was the last time my wife and I revisited it because we both had fond memories of it. Um, but like he's there in that. Um, later in the eighties, you get him in films like, uh, you know, when Harry met Sally and, um, in the nineties, you get stuff like city slickers. And then obviously the, uh, if you were anybody who was paying attention in like the comedy scene in the, the like late eighties, early nineties, uh, he and Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg were doing the, uh, comedy relief things. Yes, and, that's a good call. Yeah. Um, he also, um, did a film in the early 2000s. I think he directed it about the uh, Mickey Mantle, uh, Roger Maris race to beat Babe Ruth's uh, record. It was called 61. <laughs> um, great film because it stars uh, the Punisher, uh, Tom Jane, and uh, actor by the name of Perry Pepper. Uh, Barry Pepper, sorry. <laughs> Perry Pepper. Uh, Perry Pepper. <laughs> no, Perry Pepper, film. yeah. Uh, he, he's like, I, I he's like he, um, you know, if someone was like, but what of Jake Busey, but different? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then stuff like, you know, Monsters, Inc. I think one of the funniest moments that I've ever experienced in a Pixar film is in that first Monsters, Inc. film when they're getting ready to watch the commercial. And it, it 
like it smash cuts to like a close up of his eye and him like watching it and you just see the eye darting darting around and like the expression on his face made me laugh so hard the first time I saw it. Um, so he's sort of somebody who's been always a part of my pop culture existence. And I just want to say it was, it was great to see that he, and I'm, I'm missing the princess bride. That's the one that people always oh, go to. Dear Lord. Um, yes. Yeah. That's why I mentioned to my wife. I was like, he was the princess bride. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Also monsters. <laughs> like, I, like it was like, yeah, no, he, he, you know, so, yeah, yeah. He's, he's amazing in this, uh, as the voice oh. of, of the, the Calcifer, fire demon, yeah. which it's like, I didn't expect him to get as much as he got like early in the film, but it's like, he was a delight and I loved just, I don't know. Like it's like, it, it, this is, this is a spoiler and kind of a pun. He was the heart of the film. Like I was not expecting that whatsoever. And I loved it. Yeah. And actually it's, it's interesting because, uh, you say that. And I, I also looked at some of the other actors who were in the film and, you know, uh, Lauren Bacall, I, I, I hadn't realized that she had passed away at this point, but, uh, when you mentioned that, but I think she's actually gives a really great performance for this as well, which are the way it's like, she's, if it, 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 it might go Billy, Billy Crystal's performance and then her, like I loved her in this performance. So supposedly as the story goes, well, so I'll give you, I'll give you two bits of trivia. One is that after, um, I forget which film it was a spiritual way or wherever Christian Bale is like, I'll be any Miyazaki film with, without any knowledge that he would be considered for the lead in this one. So he was like, I'm going to do this. And he got it and he was surprised by it. Um, and I think he does. Okay. Like it's Christian Bale, which, you know, if you like him, you like him. If not, like, I mean, I, I like him in this. I, you know, I just think his character's a little aloof, but that's kind of the point. But with Lauren Bacall, even at this point in her career, she ended up meeting Miyazaki at like a, um, a screening. I don't know which if it was for maybe this film. Cause she was casting or another one of his and like the U S but it was a subtitled film. And she asked if he was single. I think that's hilarious. She's like, Hey, sup. Cause I feel like that was the witch of the waste the entire time. <laughs> and that makes me very, very happy. But it was funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, going back real quick to uh, Christian Bale. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to say something anti-Batman, I guess this episode, but, uh, and again, it's not like it's a bad performance or anything like that, but I, I, I don't know that, his performance works for me as well as the others. Um, and I hate to say that cause it's like, and again, who am I? Like, you know, it's not like I'm hurting Christian Bale's feelings, but I, you're done I with him professionally though. We're done. This- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it, I think it works. It's okay. But I happen to think of, the other portrayals in this film. And I, I feel like everyone else, and maybe it's not even his fault. Maybe it's, maybe it is an issue with the writing when it comes to Howl. but I, I feel like of the characters has maybe the least interesting in a lot of ways. And I don't know that, uh, I don't know. His performance fell flat for me and I don't know if it's his fault or if it's the, the, and again, I, I'm, I'm fighting with myself because flat is, a little too harsh, but well, I mean, there's the, the, so many the, wonderful performances. It's it's a shame, unfortunately, that like his was, was like 
uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I was hearing too much Christian Bale. A pedestrian. Because there's times where it's like he just kind of it's – it is what it is. And it's like either – like I said, take it or leave it. Um, you kind of want someone like with a smidge more charisma. I'm not saying he's not capable of it. But like at the beginning whenever he saves Sophie from – the uh, soldiers, which is also a very dark moment where it's like, Oh, let me walk you home. And she's like, I'm good. I'm good. And the soldiers take no for an answer. He, and Hal just like taps on the shoulder. He's like, Nope, we're good. And then he sends them on their way, marching like toy soldiers, which is really entertaining. Um, I'm trying to think who you would have at this time of 2005. That was an American. Well, I mean, he's Welsh. I mean, which also feels weird to me that, Part of this film, part of the book takes place in Wales that they didn't actually deal that because it's like he's Welsh. That would have been perfect, perfect. But whatever, that's neither here nor there. Um, I I don't know who you would have gotten in 2005 to kind of fill that charismatic lead role. And I don't know. Who would have you put in that role at that time? Toby Maguire. Sure. Okay. That's fine. I agree with that. I'm just joking because he was Spider-Man at the time. Yep. Uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head who I would put in there. But, and again, it's unfair because I'm holding him against that uh, portrayal and it's an animated film. So there's only so much he can do with his voice. But I don't know. This was the one character that I found lacking. Okay. that's. I'm not saying, again, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just... Uh... You know, I was just, I'm just trying to think who else you'd put, um, who else you'd put in there with that uh, as that role. Um, let me see here. I'm just looking through our, um, choices that we had then. Um, I am just thankful. And this is not that role of how I am just thankful that this film didn't count later. And Josh Gad wasn't the voice of the fire. Cause I feel like that would happen now. And that would piss me off. Um, so goddamn much. Uh, knowing what I know about Chris Evans as being very uh, likable and lovable, I would have loved him in this role, but he wasn't as big as a commodity at the time. Yeah, I mean, Chris Evans is definitely the quality I think you want for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of 2004, who's big? And he would have, Zach Braff, no. Um, Ryan Reynolds was still kind of up and coming at that point. Um, I think he would have... I think he'd be good for this um, now, but people didn't know what he was capable of then. I got it. I got the answer. Okay. Hugh Jackman. Sure. Yeah, I like it. Let's just do it. I, I, I'm down. Every, every, yep. We're done. We're done here. Right. So, um, <laughs> no, I just, I'm not saying he was the worst. It's just, you're right. He was. Not the strongest part of this cast, but I will also give credit to Disney and uh, Lassiter for making sure that for having a uh, translation that was engaging with, um, you know, with other audiences. I think they did a pretty good job of it. Um, So I like that. Billy Crystal stole the show. There were so many times I laughed at the dumb shit he said. It was great. Um, After watching the film, realizing whenever... um, Oh, uh, Markle said to Sophie, um, the castle and, um, the fire doesn't listen to anybody other other than Hal. And then when she threatened the fire with like dousing him in like water, and then she started making breakfast and then knowing in the realization at the end of what the film was, 
that that's a big tipping of its hand where the movie's going. And I didn't realize at the time and it's a smart play. And I really enjoyed that portion of she's able to exert some, um, not control, but like, she's not going to back down and show that she's there to do a job. And so she's going to stand up against, which I feel like how as an individual for as, as not as fleshed out as he is, he needs somebody to constantly um, give him boundaries because he's done such a job of trying to remove boundaries the entire time. I think that's fair. I also think it's interesting that uh, she just sort of tells him that like, Oh, I'm the new cleaning person. Yep. And he accepts it. Yeah. You're right. But there's, there's this like small magic bits in this film that I absolutely love that it was just a given like the, 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 um, the, the, the color wheel that would turn for the different doors that would show up that, you know, this castle is moving, but there's a magic entrance that could be two separate wizard shops. I thought that was great. I loved when the soldiers marched and broke down the doors of both places and they were empty. I thought that was amazing too. There's just so much in this. It's just like, it kind of sets up its own logic. And when it shows you when other people try to get close to Howl, um, it falls, falls apart because he's kind of put these like, you know, trap doors in place. I love that. I love that the one time Sophie brings him tea, his domain is more of a bedroom. But then when she goes to find him, whenever he's like sulking and like a bird monster, it's like a hovel. Like there is some beautiful, beautiful imagery of him having like a horde of like gold and magic items, like both those times. And again, if people have not seen this film, there's just some frames of this that are just amazing to know that like people drill down on every detail and like every corner and the film shows it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, uh, I had a point and and you were talking about it and then I got lost in your your I got lost in your dreamy voice. No, no I got I, lo- I talk too much and then I leave everybody hanging. That's what I do. So No, not at all. Um shoot. Well, I had a point and now it's gone. Um but uh to speak at least a little about what you're talking about with uh Oh, I, I think it may have been about the, the, the bird creature. I think that that may have been, again, it's not something that I was like, oh, I don't buy it. I wish we would have gotten a little bit more clarification on that. If that's, it was frustrating because form. there's a bit whenever she confronts him in like his little like domain and you see like a beak and everything where it's like, he's full on monster. But mm-hmm. every other time that you saw him, no matter how big of a bird monster he was, he had his face, which Again, this might be a cultural thing, but I was like, I don't know. You have a telescopic neck and you have a large bird body. Why are you? Why do you have Christian Bell's face this entire time? That felt weird to me. And um, the only time I was okay with it was at the end, whenever he was like collapsing and fell down on like the last platform of his walking fortress, which was now just a, a two chicken legs and a plank. And the wind blows all the feathers off and it's just his body. I was okay with it. Then the rest of the time, it's like you keep transforming into this thing and getting deeper and deeper in. And that's the constant threat that Calcifer is telling you of like, you may not turn back. 
his face stays the same. And that felt a little weird to me, but I'm like, maybe that's the thing I'm just missing. Cause I'm not used to this style of storytelling and animation. Yeah. I, I just wish there had been a little bit more. And again, I, it's a small criticism, but a little bit more of a delineation between, uh, how as a human and the, the bird creature that he turns into, um, because he even turns into another person later on in the film. So it's not a huge stretch to be like, Oh, he just turns into this giant bird creature. But I wish there would have been a little bit more, uh, behind what that, that change is because he's talking about how like a lot of wizards have like, like, uh, went head first into the war effort and they've become monsters and they can't back off of it. Which I guess if you become a monster, that means you wear a top hat. Which you know what? I don't disagree with that statement. Um, but it shows him like combating both sides of the war effort, like from these two countries that they're never really specified. But you see, one's wearing blue, one's wearing red. Um, did you notice that whenever the one big war machine that was like a big wing that shows up to his uh, his Hidden Valley Ranch with all the flowers? didn't look dissimilar to him when he was in full on bird form. I mean, I know that was purposeful, but did you pick up on that? I'll be honest. I didn't. I was thinking of it as more of a tangible. What's the word I'm looking for here? I real life doesn't really apply, but more of a mechanized. Um, thick. <laughs> I, well, no, but know. it's like you, you saw like the way that the wingspan was working and that it had some organic elements. It didn't look dissimilar to him. Like, I don't know. Like I, and you know that he's trying to stop the war on two fronts and he's like, like diving in head first and giving his all to kind of stall every, everybody out. And it's not doing any good. Um, but I thought that it was important that they showed that the war machines were looking a lot like him or vice versa. And that's fair. I, I will admit that that's probably something that, well, it is something that I didn't pick up on. Um, but I think also just the way my crazy brain's working right now, I finally figured out what I was going to bring up earlier. Please do. Uh, when I, I lost my thought. Um, so I do apologize for that. Uh, but yeah, I that that your comparison right there was lost on me. And I'm sure if I sat down and rewatched it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um but uh, I wanted to talk real quick about the the uh, um, the color wheel slash um, the portal indicator lore, right? of yeah. of where they are. Yeah, uh, in regards to the portal, the fact that he, when Sophie makes it into the castle and then Markle shows up, um, his first couple scenes with her, he's navigating different portals that are opening up but only from our side and i think that's so ingenious that we're like oh they're building in how this works and wow why we should understand what it is and they're doing it in a way that's like explaining not only how howl's castle can be in different places but also uh, that there's these different portals that are opening up um and they're doing it in succession without actually explaining it they're showing it to us and saying because he answers the door like three times, I think, if, if I'm um, if I'm not mistake, mistaken, um, once Sophie first meets him and he has to put the beard back on and he's got to go answer the door. And then he walks away and the portal, 
you know, the color wheel changes and there's a new color there and then someone else is at the door and he's got to go back down and he's got to answer the door. It's, it's very smart in the way that it explains how those portals work without being like, here's an explanation of how the portals work. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And and that, that's the point that I wanted to bring up earlier. So I I apologize for bringing the the conversation to a dead halt, but, uh, I just thought that was so effective and so smart to be like, we're just going to show it to you like three times in a row and you either accept it or you don't. And I totally did. No, I think it's important because there's a lot of like, and I know it's something that like with you and uh, Ryan, when you do um, the science slasher and there's also fireworks firing behind me because I don't know, screw decency uh, right now, whenever things are going on. Um, you know, there, there's just, there's just a, a fire bombing that's happening in my small town with uh war machines right now. That's not true. That would sound terrible. But, um, when you guys strive to work together doing your, your, your comic of uh, the science slasher, I I'm going to guess there's part of you that has a checklist of like, um, w- like there's a difference between showing and telling and giving the reader and the viewer enough that they're smart enough to connect the dots. And this film does so much of connecting the dots, especially like not even like not even the portals. I'm talking about the weird, um, uh, I don't know what do you what do you would call the 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 um the the squiggly ghosts that show up. Um, you see them, and there's a bit where the witch of the waste is going into the main kingdom, and she has two squiggly ghosts that are hauling her like you know uh, carriage. Uh, it's it, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a rickshaw, but there's one on the front, one on the rear, and they're carrying it through. And they cross the threshold and there's a spell put in place that takes them out of the picture and they deflate like they're wacky inflatable uh, tube men. Um, you don't question it. You see what happens and they're done. Uh, but then later when you get to the firebombing of um, Sophie's town, um, they're trying to break down the door and they're horrific of how liquidy and squishy they are. They can get through different doors like there's never any explanation of what they are, but you know how you know what they're capable of, and they're terrifying every time they show up. So I think there is a there's a certain level of um, intelligence granted to the viewer that I know you appreciate, and I know that you guys strive for. Um, and that's my point. And I'll stop talking now. Well, I kind of brought this up. Uh before we had the discussion or before we started recording this evening in that, uh, and it has nothing to do with my, me and Ryan, but just in that they kind of reminded me of the Izzes, which mm-hmm. was the, um, henchmen, if you will, from the max, uh, both comic book and cartoon series. Um, they reminded me of that and they're just, they just sort of exist. Um, and they're part of this, you know, whimsical world. I keep using that word, but this, uh, fictitious world where I don't question their being. I, I just accept them as they are. Um, yeah. And it, it works really well. Um, and I don't know if it's that, you know, maybe there's a dreamlike quality to the animation. Maybe it's just, you know, that at this point I just accept where we're going and I don't really question it, but, um, I, I think that that stuff is, it's intrinsic to the film and it sort of adds to the magic of it. Um, 
at never at, ne- at no point was I like you know how can her henchmen be liquidy like <laughs> you know like but if this was a feature film I'd probably be questioning that so I, I shouldn't say feature film if this was a traditional two D film yeah. uh, a you know I, I, I and and maybe. Uh, that's a hang-up that I have, but I don't know. I wish I could delineate between, like, why certain things work for me and why they don't, but I, I there's so much world-building going on with this visually that I never question any of it, with the exception of uh, wanting a little bit more understanding of why the big bird creature is what he turns in, what, what Hal turns into. I agree. I, I just think it's, I think it's kind of hinted at that, like, the wizards that are um, aiding the war effort, like lean in and become like these uh, irrede- irredeemable, irredeemable. That's the word I'm looking for. Like monsters. Like if you keep doing it and, um, and even the calcifer is like, you, you can't switch back like soon. If you keep doing this, I think that's but there's never that. a point yeah. either though, that I'm like, Oh, screw this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think we all have a point in our, you know, when we're watching a film where we mentally check out, we're like, all right, that's one straw too far. Like, it, it's not that type of case. It's never a moment of like, oh, well, now so, this doesn't work for me. It's just, it's one of those things that I'm just like, huh, I wish I had a little bit more on that. I, so so I, I'll, I'll, I'll reference this and tie it together to what's going on. And then um, I know before we started recording, it was going to be a worry that it was going to be about opinions about this film, which I think we've, I think we've done a pretty good job of this, but there was the, um, we talked about like, um, about the last unicorn, which I know, uh, you were, uh, lukewarm about. And I'm again, you're not wrong about how that studio that was like, that was uh Rankin and Bass producing it. But the studio itself is, um, uh, like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Eastern. Nelvana. Okay. Yelvana, yeah, yes. It's Tivana. Now, um, about how um, Topcraft worked on The Last Unicorn, and then um, that studio also worked with um, Miyazaki on a film. Oh, uh, where is it at? I'm going to look it up. Uh, it was before this. It was an uh, earlier film he did in the 80s. Uh, oh, gosh darn it. Um, let me look it up right now. Where's the words at for this? It is... Anyway... So Topcraft worked on a film that he was part of, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which was also on HBO uh, Max. And so he had some experience with them. And then when Topcraft fell apart, they joined Studio Ghibli. Um, so I think when we talked about a lot of the Eastern influences in The Last Unicorn, and a lot of that didn't work for you uh, and for me. I, and I, it, there's a certain point where it's like the film's going to lead me along a way, but they don't let me build enough trust in it. Um, Last Unicorn never gave me enough trust to accept what was going on because they never ever, the film never trusted itself. This from the jump, it distrusts itself. It's like, oh, it's steampunk. It's dealing with this. Curses happen every day. There's a castle moving around and, and there's fangirls fanning over it. And um, this uh, old lady's going to go find it. And there's a turnip man. Like every single time the film's like, so What? Like there's a certain kind of like, this is the world we're in. So what that it, it, it's easy for you to buy in because otherwise the film doesn't care if you buy it or not. This is the story we're telling you. Yeah. I also think that, uh, part of the problem with the last unicorn and 
actually, this is a trap that uh, um, this movie doesn't fall into, is that, uh, you know, there's a... God, I really don't want to shit on the music in The Last Unicorn, but, like... <laughs> There's no, there's no music that this film doesn't rest like trying to communicate its story by the music that's in it. We'll put it that way. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I think that that's one of the problems with the last unicorn is, is that I'm not a guy who's ever going to really love the music of Kansas. Sorry to those of you who do. It was Kansas, right? I think it was America, but whatever. Oh, America. Which uh, Kansas is in America, so who knows? Whatever. It's fine. Yeah. So, uh, long story short, the it, the music was never going to grab me um, in that film. And the fact that it rested pretty hard on it in a lot of spots didn't help. Um, this film, wisely so, uh, doesn't uh, rest on having to have a song. Um or numerous songs to get us through um, from point A to point B within yeah. the story. Yeah, no, I just, um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think we should just, uh, this, this, this is a, it's a beautiful film, beautifully animated. Like it, it I don't have the vocabulary to talk about the exact reasons why this is beautiful watch it um i think the print that's available on hbo max is like it's it's flawless uh there's some wonderful pov shots there's some wonderful sweeping like when you even get to the warfare like that's not even the forefront of the film but it's always this looming threat it is devastating and horrible um but this film's beautiful it's a beautiful film it's funny um it, it's endearing and it's delightful. And if you are already on board for the first hour and a half, then the last 30 minutes, as weird as it gets, like it just, if you view it as a fairy tale the entire time, there's no boundaries. And that's kind of where my brain fell with this because I'm very critical and judgmental of a lot of things I watch, but there's a certain point. It's like, Oh, well this, this girl got turned into an old lady and her first thought is, well, I can't stay here now. And then I love the bit where her mother's knocking on her door. It's like, are you okay? She's like, no, I'm sick. And she's like, you sound like you're 90 years old. This film knew what it was doing. <laughs> like it was so ridiculous at times, but also sweet and endearing. And I think it's a hard, that is a, that's a tough high wire act to walk from beginning to end and make you give a shit throughout. Even when we get to turn it at Peds, like his resolution, it's like, Oh, well that happened. Yay. Like I wasn't upset about it, but it was dumb, but it was still fun. Um, you know, like, I don't know. I really, really, really like this film and I, it makes me want to dig in deeper to the studio Ghibli and, uh, Miyazaki films and rightfully so. Cause it, they, there's the right people, um, they're devoting like the right efforts and they're making good product. And I am ashamed to admit that I've slept on the bulk of their work until now. You should be ashamed. Yes, no, I, I should I be. Yes. I haven't watched any of it either. I will say that, uh, yeah, I, I, after watching this, I, I'm in on watching more. Uh, Spirit Away and uh, Princess Mononoke. Yeah, Mononoke. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
Steve can't speak English, let alone uh, foreign film titles. Uh, those are definitely in my queue now. I will say, too, um, and this is speaking strictly from my point of view, I will say that looking at the films that we've watched, we're halfway through now. Um, I do... I do tend to focus on the background animation and how well it's done. Um, of the films that we've watched this year so far, those are the ones that I think that I've gravitated gravitated more towards. Um, and you could you could easily say, "Oh, well, I'm looking at it from an artistic point of view," and that's that would be fair. But there's so much more happening in this film, um, as I would say happens in Secret Nilm. Uh, the environments feed the story and make it that much more believable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that type of world building really goes a long way. I think it's... I, I, I don't want to... Because I think Secret Nilm is probably still my favorite so far this year, even though we're halfway through the year. But this might be my... This is a close second. We'll put it that way. Like, I'm still... I feel like I'm inclined to be like, screw it. We're, we're going to like finish this year and like find 12 more because I feel like there's so many riches here in terms of animation because I know we were talking about like uh, making October all animation and I think that a lot of this appeals to you and to me and there's a lot of gold in those hills. This was a delight and it was a fun film to watch. It's been a fun film to talk about. It was a, it was a great film to watch with my wife who... Uh, she's seen some Miyazaki. I had not. The only Miyazaki film I had any any passing familiarity with was uh, Ponyo, which came out when I was still working on Blockbuster because it was G-rated. It could be put in the Blu-ray player like where I worked at. And there's a song in that film that has drilled into my head over and over and over again. So maybe that film's great. I have some issues with it, but whatever. Anyway, House Moving Castle is great. It has a castle that moves around, has wizards. It has, um, I don't know, uh, freaking Billy Crystal. Like, it, it's it's a fun movie. If you've not seen it, watch it. Watch it with your family. I think this is one, this is a film that can um, speak to multiple people of a household. And I think this film was a delight. And I loved it. I agree completely. I I am definitely going to be checking out because uh, I'm going to step back a second. When I we got HBO Max, we had HBO Go. It switched to HBO Max, I think, automatically. Went in, started looking for stuff. And I started throwing in the things that are normally you would find in my queue. Horror movies, you know, DC animated stuff, um, you know, uh, your go-tos, if you will, for the things that I... I'm now putting this stuff in my queue. So if you have HBO Max, and I know a lot of people are like, they've got friends and not a whole lot more that I care about. Check <laughs> out say, this. No, no. Let me, let me rephrase. You have you know people that, that have HBO Max, and HBO Max has friends. And like It's Sally like, I know you have friends that nobody cares about. <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> friends was sort of like its big thing. Like, they seem to really rest their, like, sure, yeah. you know, their, their, marketing on that like we've got all the episodes of friends like okay great they've been around for 20 years we can yeah. watch other stuff um <laughs> and i do want to say that uh, there are uh there's some godzilla movies on there there's uh 
a, a criterion section, if I remember correctly. Oh, the criterion like, section's amazing. I went through there yeah. and added a bunch of stuff there. Yeah. There's some really, really good stuff in there. Yes. So, yeah, the, there's a yeah. lot of good stuff on HBO Max. Don't listen to. Oh, there's some Adult Swim. Uh, speaking of animation. Yeah. So I was like immediately, I'm like, Space Ghost, Ghost, Ghost. Throwing that in there. Sorry, Metal Criterion. I meant, I meant Turner Classics movies. I think that's where that's where we need okay. like people. Like, there's a lot of good shit in there. You're like, there's things where it's like, yeah, Turner Classics movies is okay with this. It's like, yeah, game on. It gets weird in Turner Classics movies, and I've added a lot of stuff to my queue there. It's it. I think the searchability of the service needs to get better, but there's a lot there. Yeah, and I I I'm really like uh in terms of like the searchability like i'm really surprised that and i understand that some things are contractual but like why not all the dc stuff is up on their dc hub kind of scratch as yeah. a little bit of a head scratcher but like hopefully they get better about that as they go on but yeah i mean i don't mean to turn this into a, a commercial for hbo max but i see like a lot of people shitting on it and i'm like there's actually a lot of quality stuff. There is a lot of quality stuff. It. Yeah. And also we were talking about this form of store recording. Um, we talk about DC things and I know they've been kind of moving movies on and off. And I know that Warner brothers has their DCU or DC um, own separate streaming app or whatever it's called. Um, Doom patrol is part of HBO max and season two is coming soon. I need to sit down and watch this. This seems like, right up my alley and it's getting weird and you have Brendan Fraser playing a robot. So take my money. I'm excited for that. Yeah. I, uh, we, we've talked about that, uh, that neither of us have watched doom patrol and of the most recent DC series that they've done. Those, that's the one that we're most interested in. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, planning on spending more time exploring the studio jubilee hub and i hope they keep that on their service i don't know how long you know things last for them and you know obviously like disney plus at the same time when they came out like they wanted to throw everything they possibly had up at once yeah i'm hoping some of this stuff sticks around on hbo so that i can get to it yeah so all right that's our commercial for hbo uh max uh watch Howl's moving castle it is a delight um, it is uh, a gateway drug for us to watch other Studio Ghibli and uh, Hayao, Hayao Miyazaki films. I need to. Um, I know I messed up all the pronunciations. I apologize. Uh, but there's an untapped there. And I'm sure there's people that I know that'd be like, you haven't watched any of those? I'm like, nope. And I need to now. So I know that the one film I think Porco Rosso has Liam Neeson voicing like the main character. So take my money, HBO Max. Yes, I need to watch more of that. So yeah, that's going to do it for our year of animation episode regarding uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Hope you guys enjoyed like all the Batman talk at the beginning because it wouldn't be an episode of Invasion without that. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Invasion the Podcast. You can find us at our uh, Gmail. It's Invading Podcast. Um, we have a website called and. In- invasionthepodcast.com where there's blogs from a while ago. They're dusty, but if you want to read uh, some year of canon uh, topics that we did, uh, year of the knockoff, 
uh, you're the Western. There's plenty there. You guys can read my poorly worded things. And then also there's some posts from Steve about his amazing Star Wars collection about his thoughts about Friday 13th. Spoiler that's coming in here in a second. Um, but yeah, uh, wherever you, wherever you guys find your podcast, please rate and review us, whether it be Stitcher, Podbean, Podcatcher, um, Apple music, Google play, um, bucket O pods. That's not a thing, but wherever, um, if you find your podcast out in the streets and this, like they're off to the side and they're all washed up rate and review us. That'd be greatly appreciated. And Steve, how can people find you? You can find me at the Saturday night slasher.com. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook under the Saturday night slasher. And, uh, yeah, uh, we still have our, I was just gonna say, you can find me on, uh, the art of the slash on Etsy, but we still have our store on snooze right now. Um, I need to reopen our shop just simply because I closed it down during COVID. Cause it's like, I don't know how crazy I'm about getting stuff mailed out. So we'll be opening that back up at some point soon. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, find us on the website, find us on Instagram, Facebook, all those good places. And you are moments away from finishing the second, uh, issue of the science slasher. Yeah, we, we've got, uh, enough material now that we'll be able to put out the second issue and, uh, uh, we'll take a little bit of break from that to focus on putting on, uh, uh, a new, uh, uh, putting out a new edition of, uh, beyond sunset, which is an anthology comic comic that we do uh myself and ryan and uh and then we'll go back into uh doing more siren slasher so um keep the keep your eyes tuned i suppose to the website yeah keep your eyes tuned (laughs) did i say tuned i'm sorry peeled uh it's it's 10 42 at night people it's been a long day yeah uh so uh yeah um Hopefully you're following us and uh, hopefully you're reading. Yeah. So uh, if the last page of issue two doesn't end with Jeff, detective Jeff Saturday coming on the scene and realizing that maybe he is the slasher that I feel we're all been cheated, but no, that's not true. Um, Yeah. So that's going to do it for us this week. Next week. uh, I am uh, giddily excited to uh, announce that we're going to be getting goddamn stupid and because of HBO Max, um, there's a little film called Jason X that we're going to be talking about. Uh, it is the 10th Friday 13th film in which Jason goes to space. And as much as uh, Steve is a Friday 13th fan, um, I'm, I'm forcing him to talk about this uh, really, 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 really fun dumpster fire of a film. I cannot wait to talk about this next week. Yeah, of of the franchise, I think both nine and ten are my least two favorites. Uh, but I'm excited to uh, revisit it and have a conversation about it. Yeah. So next week, Jason X. Hope you guys have a good week. I hope you watched Howl's Moving Council. If you've seen it previously, watch it again. Otherwise, check out other uh, that film and other films for Studio Ghibli. It's on HBO Max. Uh, so yeah, have a good week. Have a safe week. Uh, wear a goddamn mask. Wash your hands. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Travel by me.
Just right. 